Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we love you today and offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. God, may you speak to us by your spirit. May you accomplish in us all you desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. My sermon title this morning is Preparing for a Good Lent, and my subtitle is Becoming a People of Restraint in a World Out of Control. My sermon, as I said before, is not going to be an exposition of one of the four texts that we read this morning. Instead, my purpose is going to be to prepare you to have a good Lent, and uh, maybe that's something that's new to you, and so I'll explain that as we go along. But to a certain extent, I want to bridge between the season of epiphany that we've been in that's been all about appearing. Actually, today uh, is uh, a Sunday where we recognize the transfiguration. And the strange part of that is we didn't read any transfiguration texts related to that. But it is, we also celebrated in August. So I'm not going to emphasize transfiguration at all. But it is another appearing of God, appearing of Christ in our midst. And the glory that's associated with that and the humility that comes to us. And when we are encountered by the presence of God. And then we move to our season of Lent. And Lent is a season of penitence, a season where we just do some introspection and start looking at our lives honestly and say, what is there about my life that I need to make improvement in? What areas do I need to address that I can start uh, either removing things or adding things that somehow will make me a better person, a person of virtue? And that's the emphasis that I would like to provide for you. I've chosen a text uh, from Titus chapter 2, if you'd show that, Sarah. And it is a text that I'm going to challenge you over the series of Lent to memorize. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. We're going to give you a job. We're going to make you memorize a text. Not going to make you. Uh, I don't have that authority. (laughs) We've already talked about authority this morning, haven't we, Dave? Uh, uh, I would encourage you to memorize this text. And listen to how it, it really provides a beautiful transition between Epiphany and Lent. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. And this is talking about Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. What is that word appeared? It's epiphano, epiphany. God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. So Christ came to deliver salvation. But notice what it also does. It brings salvation for all all people. And now it also trains us. Paideia is the word for uh, training a child, disciplining a child, bringing a child up to a point where it is practiced in virtue so that that child can renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Isn't that beautiful? the, The grace of God has appeared, Epiphano, bringing us salvation and training us to renounce all these things and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Let's finish it out. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us for two purposes, to redeem us from all lawlessness and two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's a passage that you can embed yourself in for a long time and memorize and also meditate upon. And I would encourage you over the season of Lent to embrace that text as one for yourself. The word self-discipline appears there, and our culture does not like the word self-discipline, self-mastery. It does show up in one arena where we celebrate it, and that's typically in sport. 
When I was uh, moving from Living Faith in 2019 and arriving there during Advent, I was traveling back and forth, and I actually, we got into our home in uh, January, and as we were arriving there, the news broke and the accident happened of Kobe Bryant being killed in a tragic uh, helicopter accident. And that was in the, I was in the deanery of Los Angeles, and in Los Angeles, Kobe Bryant is a celebrated figure. And so it was deeply felt by the entire community. And if you know uh, Toby Bryan's history and you know his uh, accomplishments in the NBA, you might want to make the argument that he was the GOAT. Uh, I would not make that argument. Larry Bird obviously was the GOAT. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but there are many accomplishments. He started in the NBA right out of high school at the age of 18. And he accomplished things. He had so much natural talent, but he was a person of tremendous self-discipline when it came to his sport. Uh, there's one story told of him when he was uh, 18 years of age. He's in the playoffs. He's playing for L.A. and playing against the Utah Jazz. And he is uh, at a point in the game. It's a clutch game. They had to win this game in the playoffs in order to advance uh, to finals. And Kobe Bryant, with all the confidence that was just part of him, he took a long jump shot in his beautiful form. And what, what he did? He threw an air ball. In fact, over the next few moments, he threw four air balls. Didn't touch the rim, didn't touch the net, didn't touch anything, just totally missed, and L.A. lost. He went home that night, and he went directly to Palisades High School, where he had gone to high school, and all night long till the wee hours of the morning, he shot long shots again. He did that all summer long. He did that all until finally he was prepared for the fall, and by self-discipline and self-training, he had put himself in a position where he was able to shoot those shots and accomplish what he did from that time forward, 18 seasons in a row, being named to the All-Star. And so a tremendous accomplishment, but it didn't come through just natural talent. It came through an individual who disciplined himself and mastered himself and mastered his body and, and caused his body to probably do things that just are unimaginable for most of us as we think about it. But Kobe Bryant, as you know, also had some dark sides to his life. He had areas of his life that were totally ungoverned. He was a man of temper. He had difficult relationships. He clashed with coaches and teammates. And he even had allegations of sexual abuse and actually false imprisonment in 2003. And to that, he never admitted guilt. And yet we know that that was very much a part of his life. And while the body can be mastered, many times it's much more difficult to master the Spirit. At the same time that Kobe Bryant's story broke, there also broke a story from La Arche about Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier was a famous individual, almost a saint, considered a saint in many regions of France and Scotland. He started up an organization called La Arche, and La Arche was basically an organization that ministered to the developmentally disabled people. And he established these. These are found in 38 countries across the globe. Ten thousands of people have been touched by these organizations. But he brings them into the community and, and gives them dignity and provides their needs. And volunteers come from all over and serve there. And it's a wonderful, tremendous organization. And Vanier, at this point in time in uh, 2000, the year 2020, was found out that he had abused five women during a period of time from 1975 to uh, the time of his death, I think in 2019. And uh, it was a block, uh, a blotch on his, his record. 
And they started an uh, investigation, and the, the results of that investigation came out just two weeks ago. And the results of that investigation by these academics who investigated and, and interviewed all kinds of people over this period of time discerned that over a seven-decade period, he'd abused about 25 people. He'd used, uh, and these were volunteers, not necessarily development to save people in, his, in large. So that's, I guess if there's virtue there, <laughs> that's some virtue there. But anyway, he, he, he was in this situation, and, and here was a man who was saintly. He was, people in his presence and heard the gospel taught by him were impressed by the, the depth of his awareness and his, his depth of his touch of the gospel. And yet he had this mark upon his life that extended over 70 years of time, an area of life that was totally out of control, totally out of self-discipline. We hear those stories and we feel a real warning in ourselves. Does it alarm you? It alarms you about people you trust, but also alarms you a little bit about yourself. And and to a certain extent, it should cause us a little bit of alarm because we all know we have areas in our life that we need to address and we need to bring under governance so that we have virtue in our lives. I want to just say here that moral failure does not undo all the good that a person is or that a person does. It doesn't undo everything. Jane Vanier did a lot of good. It does defame the testimony. It does disintegrate integrity. It does derail their advancement. It does disappoint their admirers. However, the fruit of their ministry and the fruit of their life still remains. That's hard for us because sometimes we have black and white categories and we sometimes have difficulty dealing with that aspect. And so we're humble. We read our lectionary text this morning. We start out in Leviticus and we end with the gospel. And the second verse of Leviticus that we read this morning says, Be holy as God is holy. That's a tall order. And then our reading in the gospel ends, So be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we have this challenge to absolute holiness and absolute perfection. And we stand there and say, Wow, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? What do I have within me to accomplish absolute holiness and perfection in my life? Moses calls us to holiness, and he goes through all these practical areas where you're doing good. You're leaving a little bit of grain in your field. You're leaving a bit of fruit on your vine so that the poor and the the homeless and the helpless can have some provisions. And he speaks against lying and stealing and swearing and oppressing others and being partial to the poor and hating others. And he provides a very rigorous list. And he ends, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's interesting that five sections there, five paragraphs, are punctuated with the words, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Remember reading that? (laughs) It just just strikes you. It's punctuation. I am the Lord. And there's a sense of warning almost in that, that God's sovereignty and his dominionship over our lives calls us to be people of virtue. And we feel, wow, that's heavy. Jesus speaks to us even in a stronger way and extends Moses' list and he talks to us not just about caring for the poor and the, the, the sojourners, but our enemies. Do good to your enemies. Those people who slap you in the face. Uh, there was an old Baptist preacher in Texas named Sam Jones. He said, Jesus gave me, he said, when somebody offends me, they can hit me once in the face and then I'm instructed to do second, 
they can hit me again, but after that, it's a free-for-all. <laughs> you know, you only got two cheeks, right? <laughs> but it's like Jesus is calling us to do good to our neighbors. And he says, not only do good to them, but love them. How are you any different from Gentiles if, and, and people who are ungodly and the pagans if you don't love your enemies? And so he's calling us to a very high standard to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Every week we come to this service and we also, if you do morning prayer, evening prayer, you have prayers of confession. And we realize that there are some problems in our nature. We have sins of omission, not doing things we're supposed to do. We have sins of commission, doing things we shouldn't do. And then we have sins against love. Love of God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love of a neighbor as our very selves. And we know in the midst of all of that, we are undone. And I know the call to perfection for some is almost like, gosh, that's such a high call. I, I, I don't even know where to begin, so I don't even try. I don't even try. Or there's others who have been parts of uh, legalistic and authoritarian branches of Christianity that have just been oppressive, and they've damaged their spirits and, and affected their spirituality in very negative ways. So let me offer you a little bit of comfort. Whenever I deal with these passages, I always try to juxtapose, juxtapose against it Psalm 103. Listen to Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion upon his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. And finally, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He remembers that we are dust. Do you remember that you're dust? I do. Check my collar at the end of the day. I am dust. Paul, when he's giving the pastoral epistles, and I love the pastoral epistles because they speak, I'm a, I, don't, I won't say I'm a young pastor, but I always was immersing myself in the pastoral epistles to receive Paul's mentorship. And he writes them to Timothy and Titus, instructing them how to be good pastors to their people. And it's interesting when he comes to 2, Peter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he lists all kinds of things that Timothy should be doing to be a good pastor, publicly reading the scriptures and all these types of things. And toward the end of that, he says, practice these things, end of chapter 4, practice these things, immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. He didn't say so that all may see your perfection. You're a pastor, you're supposed to be perfect in all your ways. No, Timothy, it's not your perfection. So that all may see your progress. That you're improving, that you're growing, and that people can evidence the fact that you're growing. And then he says, uh, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And I think what Paul is sort of indicating here is that while perfection to a certain extent is unattainable and you might dismiss it as a goal for your life, progress towards perfection is attainable. And you can look at your life and say, you know what, I've got a problem with anger. I need to start addressing this in my life and I need to start working on that. And it should be observable by people around me that I'm less angry now than maybe I was six months ago. And that's the type of thing I think that Paul is pointing to so that everyone may see 
your progress? Do you making progress in virtue and, and growing in your faith and growing in your self-control over the passions of your life? Let me give you a third comfort from the Didache. The Didache is the teaching of the 12 apostles. It was composed probably around 100 to 120 A.D., so shortly after the apostles were off the scene. And some would claim it, it contains teachings from the apostles themselves. It talks about uh, 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 what, what you do with uh, prophets who come into your village. So what are you supposed to do when they come in and ask for money or, or try to stay for a number of days and try to take care, advantage of your hospitality? The text says they're false prophets. And tells you all about uh, the baptism and Eucharist. It's a very fascinating text. It talks about the second coming of Christ. But one of the interesting parts of the book is, is in the first few chapters, it has two ways theology. The way of death and the way of life. The way of death is all these ways of sin. The way of life is doing all this righteousness. And he ends that section with these words, which I find so wonderful. Beware lest anyone lead you astray from this way of righteousness, for he teaches apart from God. For if you can bear the whole yoke of the law, you will be perfect. But if you cannot, do as much as you can. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I, I, just, I almost laugh every time I read that. I do. Do as much as you can. In other words, make progress. Keep, keep doing more. Keep advancing. Keep growing. Keep becoming more and more virtuous in your life. We don't start at perfection. We don't reach perfection in this life. So do as much as you can. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing in so you become more and more holy. Beside, behind the, scenes, uh, the scenes of the call to holiness and perfection here in this text is a call to self-control, a call to restrain and restraining ourselves and renouncing ungodliness. Everything you think you don't have to say Everything you desire, you don't have to do. Everything you want, you don't have to possess. And every passion you feel, you do not have to act upon. Become people of self-control. The translation of Titus chapter 2 in the NIV is that the grace of God has appeared bringing us salvation, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. Say no to yourself. Say no to passions and desires that may rise up in you. When it comes to self-control, there's a couple of metaphors that show up in Scripture, too negative and too positive. The negative ones are slaves. Slaves of a person without a will because they have to do what their master says, and you become slaves to sin so that you just do sin without thought or without volition, and that's a very poor state to be in. The other uh, negative analogy is being a beast, just a beast, a beast that has no control over its passions, and you're just a ravenous, and you go through life ravenous. The other metaphors are positive. <clears throat> a bridle. You have a large horse or a large mule, and you put a bridle in their mouth, and what can you do? You can control it. You can guide it. And James talks about that, and, and Proverbs talks about that. James can, uh, correlates that with the tongue, <laughs> bridling our tongues. And the other one is just the word discipline. Soldiers discipline themselves. They train themselves. They go through their boot camp. And athletes train themselves and discipline themselves, bringing their bodies and their passions under control. When you go to the ancient lists of virtues, you find that self-control appears there. And if you go to our New Testament lists of virtues, you find self-control appears there. It's in the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the favorite, my favorite texts is in 2 Peter chapter 1 where it talks about adding to your faith virtue and it starts giving a list of seven virtues to add to your faith and one of them is self-control. 
Self-control is something about our lives. And uh, it's interesting, I think, that sometimes we think of it as self-mastery. And what's interesting about the Greek words is that there are two Greek words for this, but the word self doesn't appear in either one. So there's always this controversy about, well, who's controlling the self? Is it me, con- me controlling myself? Uh, and whose self is being controlled? Are there two selves here? Uh, how's it all working? And, but self is not really part of the equation. So when you think about the fact that we control ourselves by ourselves for ourselves, that's a false premise. The basic foundation premise is the grace of God has appeared teaching us. And the grace of God enables us to have self-control. When we start out in 2 Peter chapter 1 and you have this expression about adding to your faith virtue, giving all diligence, adding to your faith virtue, it has been preceded by a statement that God's power, his divine power, has given us everything we need for life and virtue, life and godliness. And uh, that divine power will also make you able to be partakers of the divine nature that Christ might be formed fully in you. And then, once you realize that foundational truth, and you have faith, you add to your faith as a foundation virtue, knowledge, self-control, and on and on up the list, all the way to agape love. And so self-control is in these lists, and self-control has the idea of having power or control over your passions, that you have lordship over your body, and lordship over your desires. And the other words, so for sune, which is in our text today, it's, it's, that it's like having wisdom, prudence, uh, not being ignorant or foolish, but being a person of wisdom. That was the four cardinal virtues of Greek virtue, wisdom, courage, prudence, and justice, and prudence was there. And so you have this sense of virtue and self-control over our lives, over our passions. If you think you can do all this on your own, If you think you can master yourself by your own self-effort and the exercise of your will, you overestimate your own strength and ability. You underestimate the power of your enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You ignore your need for the grace of God and the provision of God through the Holy Spirit. You ignore your need to abide in Christ. You ignore your need for the Word of God. You ignore your need for the Christian community which holds us accountable and gives us support and gives us prayer uh, support in our lives, and you know your need for a proper Christian motivation, that everything is motivated by the two primary motivators we find in Scripture, the fear of God, which is a positive concept, and the love of God, which draws us to God himself. Doing it in our own effort will fail, but doing it by the grace of God, working in us, cooperating with the grace of God, will lead us to self-control. What is Lent? Lent is our boot camp. Lent is our athletic training camp that we go to to prepare ourselves for virtue. It is a time in our lives where we just can focus in for five Sundays, for 40 days, and just look at our lives in humility and honesty and say, God, where do I need some help? I finally started taking care of my body <laughs> now that I've got my I've moved, we had to move our belongings twice, move it from Yakaipa to here, put it into storage, then move it out of storage, move it to our house. And my 65-year-old body is getting older. And moving my 300-pound slate uh, pool table per, per, per uh, section, three sections, it's straining my body a little bit. <clears throat> and then I worked for three months, you know, fixing my house up, painting and all this type of stuff. So I went to my doctor the, second, the 3rd of February, and uh, I, 
I'm in relatively good health, but I was having some uh, pain in my neck and pain in my shoulders. And he said, well, what have you been doing? And I said, well, this is what I've been doing. <laughs> and he tells me, well, maybe you need some physical therapy. And so he sent me to a physical therapist, and I go there and I get some exercise. This guy gave me a wonderful massage. Ah, it was wonderful. Uh, I enjoy his strong hands on my shoulders and neck. And then I go through all these exercises in the end with some uh, electrodes and some heat on my neck, and, and that's 10 minutes of just uh, glory. <laughs> And then they give me this list of exercises to take home with me that I'm supposed to do when I go home. Can anybody guess how many times I've exercised in the 10 days? <laughs> Harry, you have such a low view of me. He said zero. He put his hand up, zero. Harry, you're correct. <laughs> you're absolutely correct. <laughs> and you know what? I can sense some relief already from what has happened at the physical therapist's uh, office. And so I've gone there, and it's been good that I go there. But I think I'd be more further along in my improvement if I did the exercises that they gave me to do. And I'll start tomorrow. <laughs> I'll give you a report. You know, Peter will report for me when he preaches. And so when you think of Lent, think of it as a time where you're just going into an area where you say, there's something I need to address. You can't address it all at once, right? You can't address everything, but it's a time where you address something in your life. And you give an honest look at your life and say, I want to take these 40 days and just focus on that and, and maybe add a discipline, maybe add, add, address an issue of sin or whatever. And it's not a call for groveling. It's a call for genuine grief over sin. It's not a call for humiliation. It's a call for humble introspection. It's not a call for guilt and shame. It's a call for growth and sanctification. It's not a call for false piety. Oh, I'm fasting. It's a call for faithful embodiment of the gospel. It's not a call for earning God's grace or favor. It's a call for putting forth the effort to cooperate with the grace of God that's already begun its work in your life. Dallas Willard has a wonderful comment. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude that we have. I earned my salvation or whatever. No, but grace is, is not opposed to effort that I cooperate with the grace of God in me to become the people, a person that God has called me to be. So what I want to do is I want to challenge you over Lent to memorize, as a beginning point, Titus chapter 2. And then there are five areas. Sarah, if you show that slide. There are five areas I'd like to choose one or more or two or try the whole. Don't try to overdo yourself. <laughs> That's the worst thing to do is try to do everything. So I would challenge you to look at your life and say, is there a temptation or an area where I struggle that I need to overcome? And identify that and name it and start the 40 days to work on that. Is there a resource that I can study or to utilize that I will uh, somehow address over these 40 days and, and will uh, make an application. Of maybe, I think there's even some online studies that are going on you could really participate in. I'm actually going to send you a document. Uh, uh, we'll put it on the webpage, but I think I'll just send it to you as well as a PDF document that I've been composing of all kinds of resources and activities that will help you in Lent. It'll even give you some books that you could possibly purchase and uh, give you correlation with some apps that would be helpful to utilize on a daily basis. One of the things we're going to do during Lent that I'm excited about is that uh, I participate in spiritual direction. I have a spiritual director who I meet with monthly, 
And uh, we just look at my spiritual life. We talk about, and he helps me listen to God. That's ultimately what spiritual direction is. Uh, you may not know this, but we have five spiritual directors in our congregation, people who have been trained to become spiritual directors, and that's beyond Father Peter and myself. And so what I want to do is not to try to get you to go and become one of their clients or one of their people who work with them, but I want to have a session one Monday night. It's, I, I, I can't remember the date. <laughs> uh, you'll know it. To, uh, I'll send it out early this week and we'll put it on the webpage. But I want to just have a night where you just say, gosh, what is spiritual direction? I've never heard of that before. It's just such a strange thing. I want you to have an opportunity where you just have a chance to, to show up on Zoom and hear from our spiritual directors what spiritual direction is and what it incorporates and to find out what they do and what their goals are as they help journey along and companion with somebody over a period of time to help them to listen to God and maybe address some areas of life that need help, but how, how to gain intimacy with God and grow closer to God. And we'll have some other exercises like that that we also will host during these uh, days of Lent. So resources to study. What practice, what spiritual discipline can you add to your life? I want to add the examine. And I want to start at the end of the day, start using examine. And I'll have a document for you that will teach you how to do examine at the end of the day. Choose a person that you say, you know what, I really am a lone ranger. I, I go my life all alone. And I'm going to ask somebody to be an accountability partner with me for 40 days during the season of Lent. So choose a person to whom to give account. And then pray for one another that this whole season of Lent would be transformative, not just for yourself, but for our entire community. And if you did one or two of this list, you'll have made progress. You'll have made progress in your spiritual life, in your walk with God, in your person of virtue, in becoming the people who are not just receiving the salvation that Christ's grace offers, but being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures and to put on uh, the virtues of self-control, godliness, and uh, fruitfulness and productivity in our personal lives. Let's pray to that end. Father, we love you today, and we ask you to teach us by your Spirit. I pray that as we approach the season of Lent, and sometimes people are very frustrated and they set goals they can't even keep, keep us from those extremes but help us just to take an honest look at our lives and ask you by your Spirit, where do we need help? Where do, what do we need to learn? What do we need to gain? What practices do we need to add to our lives that we aren't doing right now that would really help us to grow in our intimacy and knowledge of God and improve our virtue? God, help us. Convince us by your Spirit. I am comforted by the fact that whenever I preach your word, you take your word and you convince hearts. And I pray that right now your spirit is speaking to each person in this room. And if they're open to hear your voice and open their heart to you, that you will convince them of an area that they need to address or, an, or a discipline that they need to add. And oh God, help us when we get down the road uh, 50 days or 40 days from now, we can say, We've made some progress, and everybody can observe the progress we've made. God, accomplish this by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.